Last time I talked a, a great deal about what I felt was the spiritual revolution going on in the world and uh, I'll, I'll touch on that very much tonight but I also want to talk about the manipulation that's going on in the world as well. A manipulation that wants to keep from us this spiritual knowledge and also wants to turn us into little more than robots that only think in ways that this manipulation wants us to think. Hello everyone and welcome to the third episode of this series where I'll be covering David Icke's eighth book, The Robots' Rebellion. Published in 1994, this book is massively longer than the previous two we've looked at. The reason for this is that this is where David switches from writing primarily about spiritual topics to focusing on history. More specifically, and as you heard in the opening clip, a conspiratorial vision of history. David describes a world where a dark force has, for millennia, sought to deny humans access to spiritual knowledge, turning us all into little more than robots. But how did we get here? That's the question I want to answer. Previously, David Icke was a spiritualist who wrote about how the problems in the world, including his predictions of natural disasters, arise from humanity's negative thought patterns our hatred and anger being projected outwards. He doesn't reject this view, but now a nefarious force takes centre stage to direct this process. Let's set the question of how aside for just a moment and look at what David writes. He begins the Robot's Rebellion by reiterating his spiritual philosophy. What I'm actually suggesting, and it's no more than what I believe and what increasing numbers of people believe, increasingly open-minded scientists too, challenges both the conventional views of who we are and what we're doing here. We're kind of offered the uh, choice of believing that there is some judgmental God saying you have sinned and you shall be punished and that after one life on this planet this guy judges whether we go to heaven or hell forever. The other alternative is that uh, offered by conventional this world is all there is science which says that we are basically a cosmic accident of evolution and we have no past, no future and basically as I saw on a t-shirt once life's a bitch and then you die don't really seem like much of a choice to me. There is an alternative to both which is increasingly emerging as the suppression is overcome, cast aside. And I'll just briefly sum up what that alternative is. It's that everything in creation is the same energy in different states of being. Uh, just as water, clouds and ice are the same substance in different states of being, so everything that exists is the same energy in different states of being. And energy is also consciousness. Some more enlightened, open-minded scientists are now suggesting, and have been for some time for instance, that it can be shown that water has a memory. Well, water as a memory seems to be crooked. That's crazy. It's water. How can it, I can't have a memory but it can have a memory 
if energy is consciousness. Because therefore, everything has some kind of memory, some kind of retention of experience, whether it be a, a wall, water, the sky, ourselves, whatever. So if that is the case, then what we're looking at in this infinite creation is one gigantic mind. And it's this mind, this one consciousness that is everything, expressing itself through different forms, that is the force that has become known as God, or whatever name you'd like to call it. Some people call it the infinite mind, it matters not. This God is not some guy with a beard sitting on a throne, handing out punishments for people who don't do as he says, and it's always a he, have you noticed that? It is the consciousness that is everything. And the way I see it, and increasing numbers of people see it, and indeed have done throughout human history, is that we are aspects of that whole. We, if you like, are like droplets of water in this ocean of consciousness. We're individual to a certain extent, but all together we make up the whole. When writing history, it's always difficult to know where to start, as obviously every event flows from the one before. David solves this problem by simply starting at the very beginning, with the creation of the universe. As we've seen previously, David presents an idealist worldview where the fundamental property of reality is mind. He writes about how this mind began to experiment with its potential to create through the power of thought, and this process is what brings the universe into existence. If, as David states, the nature of this mind is love, the challenge becomes to explain the existence of evil. David says he was unsatisfied with the standard spiritual explanations of evil he'd come across. He rejects the spiritual idea that evil is about learning for extreme experience, and contends this aspect is not helpful for our evolution. Rather, it impedes it. He posits that creation requires a balance of positive and negative energies. We can stray more into one than the other, and that's fine, but go too far and trouble begins. He explains this with a down-to-earth example, saying it's like you can relax with a beer, but nothing gets done. But if you work all the time, you miss out on life. Hence, a balance is required. David then draws on information channeled from a psychic, which he acknowledges may be symbolically, if not entirely literally true, to integrate this philosophy into history. From information he received in channeling sessions, he posits that an aspect of this one mind, which he calls Lucifer, has gone badly out of balance and become extremely negative. He suggests it might be that this aspect wanted to experiment with what it would be like to disregard the laws of creation, an experiment that ended up going badly wrong. Lucifer now feeds off negative energy, and the more of it he has, the stronger he becomes. Humanity has become the target of this highly negative Luciferian consciousness, with volunteer forces from across the universe assisting us in stopping the spread of this force. We now come to how this Luciferian consciousness has affected human history, 
from Atlantis right up to the present day through a secret society known as the Brotherhood. In a moment, I'll look at some of the more recent parts of this history. There's not a lot I can say with any confidence about Atlantis. But first, let's return to the question of how. How did David Icke come to hold such a conspiratorial view? Again, we can hear it in his own words. The following clip picks up from where the last one left off. So when I began to understand all this, and appreciate this other explanation to dogmatic religion and this world is all there is science, I started to ask a, a few questions of uh, this situation. Like, how come that this explanation, at the very bottom line least, is as credible as the other two? How come the other two get guaranteed airtime, often no questions asked, here's your airtime, say what you like, and the alternative to both of them is ridiculed, condemned, or suppressed by reflex action? The answer that I came up with was that clearly some people don't want the public to have access to this information. But who and what and why? And I began to ask other questions. Like, I don't know about you, but I've met a lot of people in my life and I can't, to my knowledge, recall anyone who wanted a war who had any interest in wars, who felt that wars were anything but horrific and to be avoided. So I thought, how come the world's been awash with wars throughout this century? Who's behind them? Or what? Or why? Then I kind of looked at this economic system that controls the world. An economic system that is so sane that the more successful it is in its own terms, the quicker it destroys the planet. It's the perfect environmental and human assassin. It insists every year that we take more from the earth even quicker, turn it into even more things, sell even more things, consume even more things, throw away even more things, to worship the real god of the modern world, economic growth. It insists that every year, 20% of the people of the world consume 80% of the resources, while leaving the other 80% to get by on the other 20%. Crazy! Of course it is! But that's the economic system, take, make and throw away, that controls your life and mine. And that of six billion people, nearly. So I thought, What's behind this self-destruction? Or who and why? I started to look at some of the other uh, conventional wisdom that we pass on from generation to generation as the only way of doing things in this world. The wisdom that says, even though the economic system that I've just described is dismantling this planet, you ask a politician of any party anywhere in the world, what do we do to get out of this environmental situation? And they will say, we must have more uh, growth to raise the money to spend on the environment. 
If I said to you the way to put out a fire is to pour more petrol on it, you'd say he's out of his mind. But that's what the politicians are saying when they say about more growth to sort out the environment. It's conventional wisdom that it's fine to treat animals as mere commodities, to be made as fat as possible, as quick as possible, on as little food as possible, to condemn every year billions of animals to a lifetime of pain, fear and suffering in the name of economics. You're sane if you judge your success in healthcare not by how many people are healthy, but by how many diseased people you manage to treat. We're treating more patients than ever before. Why? Why are so many people ill? It's conventional wisdom that rising house prices are a sign of economic success when thousands are homeless because they can't afford them. You're sane, finally, if you think it's fine to support a system that is so successful that every year it turns out more suicide, alcoholism, drug taking, homelessness, pain, stress, fear and suffering in all its forms. We'd be in real trouble if this system wasn't working, wouldn't we? That is sanity, apparently. But it's the ultimate insanity so who's behind it? Or what and why? I also remember that two or three times in my life, different people have said to me, you know, um, you know behind all this economics and politics stuff, you know a very few people actually control the world. And that kind of takes you aback when you first hear it, because you think there's six billion people in this world, how can that be? But I started to look into what was behind this Madness. And like so many things in my life over the last four years, a certain sequence unfolded. Once I had come to the conclusion that there was something in this, that thought pattern, if you like, suddenly from all angles, this information about what the hell's going on is hitting me all over the place. I spoke in Hull and a guy came out of the audience at the end with, I'll never forget it, three blue plastic bags full of papers. And he said, I think you ought to read this. Thank you very much. And I got it home and I read it, and it was unpublished material. It was photocopied parts of books and what have you. And I began to understand the nature of the conspiracy that's been going on. And since that point... So much information has come my way from so many different sources and I've been staggered to realise just how many people outside the public arena have been investigating this for a long time. And what I found most compelling is that some of them come from my direction, the way I see creation. Some come from Christianity. Some come from nowhere. Some have come into it by saying what's wrong with the economic system and who controls it. Some have come in from science by being involved in science and knowing that there is a lot of scientific knowledge that they know about that isn't being made public. And everyone's kind of converged in this same 
area of common agreement of what is going on. And that's what I'm going to concentrate on this evening, that area of common agreement. Spiritual awakening is often accompanied by a loss of faith in the existing order. The way the world is appears increasingly bizarre and unnecessary. For a start, why is no one talking about spirituality? Why are the only options ever presented a dogmatic religious or equally dogmatic materialist vision? And what's with all the wars and poverty and environmental degradation? I think we could all agree the world is insane in many, many ways. But can this insanity be attributed to short-sighted humans out of touch with their true nature? Or is a deeper and more nefarious force required? This is a big dividing line in spiritual communities, and David Icke falls firmly on the conspiratorial side of it. This process is aided by coming into contact with information that the world is indeed run by a small number of people out for their own gain. One giant error that could be made in understanding David's conversion to conspiracism is to underestimate the role that truth played in it. There are of course plenty of people who wish to write David off as a madman, pouring nothing but gibberish out onto the many pages of his books. Criticism is of course fine, but I would suggest this attempt to totally write him off has more to do with a desire to protect one's existing worldview. It's demonstrably the case that much of what David writes about conspiracy is just simply true. He describes how the United States government has initiated a multitude of aggressive wars, with Panama and Iraq being the most recent at that time. He talks about the US proxy war with Nicaragua, and how brutal South American dictators are in general backed by the US. He describes how the actions of the IMF and World Bank actually impoverish the third world, whilst Western corporations make out like bandits. He exposes internationalist think tanks like the Bilderberg Group and the Council on Foreign Relations. Obviously, these institutions do not receive a fraction of the scrutiny they really should. He writes about the assassination of the Kennedys, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. To my mind, it's clear that elements within the US government have a lot to answer for in all of these. Diverging from some of his own previous positions, he describes how environmentalism is employed as a green cloak to cover neocolonialism, evicting native peoples from their lands to assist Western mining corporations. He also raises what I think are some of the most interesting questions of 20th century history, regarding Britain's role in initiating World War I, Western backing of the Russian Revolution, and Dr. Carol Quigley's writings on the concept of an Anglo-American establishment. Broadly speaking, I agree with David Icke on all of these points and many, many more. I am also left astounded at his ability to assimilate so much information so quickly, especially in a pre-internet age. I recognise it's something I could never have done myself. David, however, goes further than exposing the corrupt and conspiratorial nature of modern governments and corporations. He ties this in to a consistent conspiracy stretching back centuries and even millennia, with powers behind the throne secretly running the show. Let's take an example with a famous story told about the family who are the subject of more conspiracy theories than possibly any other. The Rothschilds. 
back in uh, the time of the Battle of Waterloo, the guy who was in charge of the Rothschild Empire was a guy called Nathan Rothschild, who um, was an absolutely brilliant manipulator of the system. And there's one kind of story that sums it up, really. Um, when uh, the Battle of Waterloo was fought and the result was known, Wellington won, the moment uh, it was decided, Nathan Rothschild was off across land to the English Channel. Crossed the Channel as quick as he could and ended up in the financial centre of London. Dishevelled, panic-stricken, to announce that Napoleon had won the war. He then very publicly started selling off some of his stocks at ludicrously low prices. Panic! Everyone else starts selling off stocks at ludicrously low prices. Secretly, Nathan's buying them all up. And of course, in those days, we never had radio, television, so it took some days to get the result of the war back because Nathan had, was ahead of the game. When the result came that Wellington had won, panic over. Stocks go up, Nathan sells. And he made a colossal fortune out of that. And that is uh, a good example of how right up to the, to the modern world these things are manipulated. When we turn on the news and we hear about stock market crashes or, or uh, runs on the pound or whatever, they're not accidents. They're engineered. The people who make a fortune out of economic catastrophe are those who know economic catastrophe is coming. And they know it's coming because they caused it. That's a great conspiracy story. But is it true? The first account of this tale is written down 30 years after the event by French socialists opposed to the Rothschilds and Jewish financiers on various grounds. The story was then repeated in popular books throughout the 20th century. More recently, historian Neil Ferguson examined the Rothschilds family archive and concluded there existed scant evidence for it. Just one vague reference to Nathan Rothschild doing well by the information of the victory gained at Waterloo. Ferguson contends that it would not have been possible to make such money on the London market at that time, and whilst the Rothschild fortunes did soar, they didn't do so in a sharp spike, but rather over a much longer period. More recently still, journalist and historian Brian Cathcart has written that the Rothschilds probably weren't even the first people in London to hear of the victory at Waterloo. And so it seems like a tall tale fabricated by French socialists opposed to moneyed power. In a similar vein, Maya Amschel Rothschild is quoted by David Icke as saying, Give me control over a nation's currency, and I care not who makes the laws. Of course he said no such thing, not that there's any record of anyway. This one seems to be a 20th century fabrication. These add up to creating an image of a banking dynasty above the law, directing the fate of Europe. Whilst I don't doubt the history of the Rothschild family is intertwined with the destiny of nations, 
I don't think the evidence for their supervillain status always stacks up. I must acknowledge, however, that both the sources I used to refute the Waterloo story weren't published when David Icke wrote his Robot's Rebellion. Biographies of the time presented the tale as fact. What's more, all I had to do was go on the Rothschild's Wikipedia page to find these sources, something of course not available to David at the time. I would suggest then that we have to understand this work as being a product of the time in which it was written. These stories, quotations and documents, which I'm claiming are fabricated, have a cumulative effect, leading both David and presumably many of his readers in a more conspiratorial direction than can really be justified. So who are they, this they, this elite that we talk about? And how, people might rightly ask, can a conspiracy continue over at least many centuries because people die, don't they? I mean, it will all end, wouldn't it, if people, when people die, it would die with them. But of course, as I'll come to in a sec, because of the way it's structured, it doesn't work like that. The they are people who are initiated into the highest levels of this great global network of secret societies. Because at the top of the network is this elite that turns, in effect, all those different, apparently different secret societies into one gigantic organisation. And at that elite level are people who have been initiated into the real agenda. So during their lifetimes, they continue the string pulling to push the world further along the road to this global centralization known as the New World Order. But at the same time, they're looking down this pyramid of initiation levels for others who they consider of the right attitude and of the right ability to also be initiated into the real agenda. And when that happens, they get the knowledge and then they take it on when the first people die. So in this way, while the they, in terms of personnel, people, names, change with the generations, the agenda they're working to goes on basically the same. They also tend to come from certain families, Rothschilds, Rockefellers, and many others in America, which helps this continuity through the generations. Let's take another example, one with even greater consequence, which got David into most of his early trouble. I'm talking about the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. These protocols that came to light in the 1800s tell the story of the manipulation of the 20th century, the very manipulation that is being documented all over the world today. They outline the game plan of the 20th century in the most extraordinary way in documents that were written before the 20th century had even begun. To give them their full title, the Protocols of the Meetings of the Learned Elders of Zion were first published in Russia in 1903. They played a key role in justifying the Jewish pogroms in Russia at that time, as well as later persecutions in Germany under the Nazis. 
It's fair to say they've probably had the most negative influence of any text of the 20th century. In 1921, the Times newspaper exposed the protocols as fraudulent, plagiarised from earlier publications, particularly a piece of political satire called Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. As far as I can see, this is absolutely conclusive and not some attempt from the Times to cover up for the secret rulers of the world. David actually acknowledges this expose, but carries on regardless. When I read the extracts of the protocols David quotes, I can't help but feel drawn in. It does feel like they are describing the world we now live in. For example, the abstraction of freedom has enabled us to persuade the mob in all countries that their government is nothing but the steward of the people who are the owners of the country, and that the steward may be replaced like a worn-out glove. Isn't that the case? Don't we roll our eyes at how easily the mob are convinced that the government works for them? Here's another one. The politicians whom we shall choose from among the public, with strict regard to their capabilities for servile obedience, will not be persons trained in the arts of government, and will therefore easily become pawns in our game in the hands of learning and genius who will be their advisers, Specialists bred and reared from an early childhood to rule the affairs of the world. Isn't that the case? Especially in Britain, the comedy Yes Prime Minister was based on powerful civil servants leading elected representatives round by the nose. And how about... What is the part played by the press today? It serves to excite and inflame those passions which are needed for our purpose or else serve selfish ends of parties. It is often vapid, unjust, mendacious, and the majority of the public have not the slightest idea what ends the press really serves. Well, that's surely true. It seems like for forgeries, these protocols are speaking a lot of truth. The reason for this, I would suggest, is that they are truisms based on political satire which only works because it sticks close to the truth. Power structures in all ages have sought to convince the populace they are on their side, reduce public participation in government, and direct thought control through the media. People in the 19th century were perfectly capable of both seeing and satirising this. To take one further example, I'll play a clip of David talking about a document called Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, which came to light in the 1980s. I strongly suspect, but can't prove, it is also satirical in nature. In 1986, uh, someone bought an IBM copier at a second-hand sale. And when they got it home, they found inside a very thick document, which obviously shouldn't have been there, called Quiet Weapons uh, or rather silent weapons for a quiet war. And this described a policy of mass public mind control that has been orchestrated on the people of the world, particularly the Western world, since the 1950s. See if, I'll uh, just read you a little bit of it, see if you recognize the world this document is describing. Experience has proven that the simplest method of securing a silent weapon and gaining control of the public 
is to keep the public undisciplined and ignorant of basic systems principles on the one hand, while keeping them confused, disorganized, and distracted with matters of no real importance on the other hand. This is achieved by, one, disengaging their minds, sabotaging their mental activities, providing a low-quality program of education in mathematics, logic, systems design and economics, and discouraging technical creativity. Two, engaging their emotions, increasing their self-indulgence and their indulgence in emotional and physical activities by A, unrelenting emotional affrontations and attacks, brackets, mental and emotional rape, by way of a constant barrage of sex, violence and wars in the media, especially the TV and the newspapers. B, giving them what they desire, in excess, junk food for thought, and depriving them of what they really need. Three, rewriting history and law, and subjecting public opinion to the deviant creation, which I take to mean, don't tell them who they really are. Thus being able to shift their thinking from personal needs to highly fabricated outside priorities. These preclude their interest in and discovery of the silent weapons of social automation technology. The general rule, it says, is that there is profit in confusion. The more confusion, the more profit. Therefore, the best approach is to create problems and then offer solutions. Diversion summary. Media. Keep the adult public attention diverted away from real social issues and captivated by matters of no real importance. Does that describe our media today or what? Schools, keep the young public ignorant of real mathematics, real economics, real law and real history. Entertainment, keep the public entertainment below a sixth grade level. Work, keep the public busy, busy, busy with no time to think back on the farm with the other animals. To conclude then, I've wanted to explain how David Icke transitioned from spiritualist to conspiracy theorist. To understand this, I think several factors have to be taken into account. The first is that the overwhelming majority of information David presents is simply true. The world is a far more conspiratorial place and Western governments are far more imperialistic than is ever acknowledged. Discovering this is enough to shatter a person's sense of reality, leaving space for a whole new one to be formed. David's personal psychology is another factor. He doesn't do things by halves. Perhaps I could relate this to him being a goalkeeper. You can't sort of go for the ball. You have to make your best assessment of where it's going and die for it with 100% conviction. If you wait till you're sure, it's already in the back of the net. This, combined with the fact that these books were written in the 1990s, prior to the internet, led David to embrace an all-encompassing conspiratorial position, which I would suggest is not justified by the facts he presents. Taken as a whole, however, it is at this stage still far more accurate than what was found on the likes of the BBC. Thank you for listening. I'm going to skip over David's 10th book, And the Truth Shall Set You Three. It's a really excellent book on conspiracy and empire, particularly in the 20th century. 
However, I'll be covering a lot of that in Season 2 of the Energy of Empire series, and I've probably covered the stuff relevant to David's story in this episode. I'll jump on then to look at I Am Me, I Am Free, where David goes much further down the conspiracy rabbit hole in investigating the CIA's MKUltra mind control program. 